Hey, you're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit ktnnaz.org, visit us on Facebook, just search Ketchikan Naz, or you can download our free app from the iPhone store or the Google Play store, just search Ketchikan Naz. Thanks for visiting. Hope the Word of God speaks to you today. Today, uh, the, the, the question that I get asked the most as a pastor uh, is, how do I know God's real? Uh, I get asked that by kids more often than adults, uh, but I think adults would ask the question, if they're honest with themselves, how do I really know that God is real? How do I really know that he listens to me? How do I really know that he created me? How do I really know he acts on my behalf? How do I know? And the story that we're going to read today is going to discuss how do we know. Um, and it's one way that we might know for certain that God is who he says he is. Um, and so I hope that we might uh, gain some answers and some confidence in our own hearts. Um, so I'll go ahead and pray and then we'll study the scriptures this morning. Father, I pray that as we read your word, as we look at your scripture. Uh, that you would speak to each one of us this morning, that if there is doubt in our hearts about who you are and how much you love us, that you would just um, fill our hearts to the point that you push that doubt right out. Lord, that you would speak clearly to each and every one of us as we would say, Lord, show us who you are today. Show us that you're real. Reveal yourself to us this morning so that we might know who you are and trust in you all the days of our lives. Thank you for your word. It brings us life. We submit ourselves to it now in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, um, in 1 Kings, I'm going to read to you just a small portion of chapter 18. So if you're following along, it's verses 20 through 24 of verse 18. And it says, it says this. So Ahab sent to all of the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. That's a tasty sounding mountain. And, and Elijah came near to the people and he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So Elijah said to the people, I, even I, I'm the only prophet that's left of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it and you call upon the name of your God and I'll call upon the name of my God and the God who answers with fire is God. That's a great little story, is it not? Now, when I read this story, the first couple times I've read this story, um, I go, I don't know how to apply this to my life. I'm not even sure who these people are. I'm not even sure what this is talking about. So, as I read that passage, any of you knew who Ahab was? Okay, he's not the guy from Moby Dick. Okay. Um, what about Baal? Do you guys know who Baal is? Some of you? Some of you not? Maybe okay. Um, any of you know why Elijah, a prophet of God, would say, if God is God, worship him, but if Baal is God, then worship him? That would be like me getting up and saying, well, if Jesus is Jesus, then worship him. But if, I don't know, insert false God name that you feel like, this God is God, then worship him. Worship who you want. 
whoever is God to you is worship God. It seems weird when you read it like that. What is Elijah saying? Why is he giving permission to people to worship somebody who isn't God? So these questions are rolling around in my mind. And then why would he offer like um, a God rumble, like a showdown on Mount Carmel? Like, you know, Yahweh in one corner and Baal in the other corner. And it reads kind of like a WWF kind of uh, fight going on. Um, so maybe you didn't ask yourselves any of those questions. Those are the questions that roll around in my brain when I read scripture. Uh, and we're going to try and uh, discuss them a little bit today. So let's get some history. Because we are not steeped in Israelite tradition and history. We don't often know what's going on. So let's understand just a little bit about what's going on. First Kings 16 tells us that we're living in a divided kingdom. A lot of our Sunday school stories have had to do with the divided kingdom. Israel and Judah. They were supposed to be one nation, but they have found themselves to be two nations. And uh, last week we focused on Judah. This week we're focusing on Israel. Wanted to give them a fair shot, right? Tell you how each of them were failing God. Um, according to First uh, Kings 16, Israel had a series of wicked kings. So the nation of Israel had like one bad king after another, bad king after bad king after bad king. And they all led the people away from God. And Ahab was... The worst. So if I turn this on and go forward, here it goes. First Kings 1630. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. So scripture is painting the picture that King Ahab is the worst king. Of all the kings, he is the downright dirtiest scoundrel king. And if scripture doesn't make it clear enough in this verse, it continues to say that um, King uh, King Ahab decided to drive this evil reputation home, he outdid the sins of King Jeroboam. King Jeroboam, in case you don't know, because you probably don't, he was the guy that said, listen, uh, you know, I don't really want God's people leaving my kingdom and going and worshiping in Judah's territory, so I'm going to make a golden calf, and I'm going to set one up over here, and I'm going to set one up over here, and you worship these golden calves. Golden calves, people. I mean, that's like the distinct not worshiping of God. But the king who's supposed to lead people to worship God set up idols for them to worship. So he's saying Ahab did worse than King Jeroboam. He said, listen, I'm going to marry a pagan girl named Jezebel. Does that sound familiar to you guys, that name? <laughs> Jezebel's not, you're all modern, you know who Jezebel is, right? It's, a, it's become a modern term. When we want to insult someone, we might say, oh, they're a Jezebel. And it carries this connotation of, just not good all around. You don't want to have that association uh, carried with you. Because you know, Jezebel was this pagan girl, and she worshipped and served a god named Baal. Um, and, uh, and, and when she married Ahab, Ahab said, Listen, um, I love you, my sweetie honey bell. Uh, I just love you so much. Your god's going to become my god, and so uh, your god will become my god and my nation's god. And so what I'm going to do, sweetie honey, is I'm going to set you up an altar, a temple, for your God in my nation, and then I'm going to shove out the Yahweh altars, and as a nation, we're going to worship your God, because I don't want any strife between us, because we're married, and I love you, so what you love, I love, we're good, your God is my God, and so basically, as the king over this nation, he decided that Yahweh was out, and Baal was in, and Baal was going to be the God that they were going to worship. Now, um, it says again in Scripture, in like verse 32 or 33, Ahab did more to prove the uh, did more to prove to God to anger him than any of the other kings that were before him. 
he really did some things that angered God. In fact, he is the one who ordered the walls of Jericho to be rebuilt. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the walls of Jericho, and God said, don't ever rebuild the walls. Never rebuild the walls of Jericho, it will cost you what? Your son, your firstborn son, and your youngest son. And so, um, King Ahab was the guy that said, hey, Hilliel, I want you to rebuild the wall. And as they were rebuilding the wall, Hilliel's firstborn son and youngest son died. Because they violated the command of God. Instead of devoting the people and the land to God, it was becoming a people and a land devoted to a false god, among others, Baal. Now, um, how many of you are familiar with ancient uh, Mesopotamian uh, pantheon of God worship? Anybody? Anybody studying totally? Thank you for that. Uh, okay, so, um, for the record, I was not either, and it's really hard to understand this story if we don't understand who Baal is and what the significance of the worship was. So just hang tight. I'm going to tell you a little bit about ancient Mesopotamian gods. As a nerd, I just enjoyed studying this out this week. Okay, This is the condensed version for you. Okay, There is a general Canaanite word in the land of Canaan, right? The pagan land of Canaan. There's a general word for God, and it meant the strong or the powerful one. That was the general word for God. And the head of the pantheon, or the head of all of the gods in this land, was called El. Now, we might recognize that in terms of uh, Old Testament worship, like El Shaddai, like the, the god, kind of, it's a, it's a term um, that was taken a little bit from the Canaanite era, and, uh, and it's a term that we might be familiar with, okay? But the Canaanite god El was a remote and shadowy figure, so just go in your imagination, okay? He's a remote and shadowy figure who lived far away from Canaan, at the source of two rivers. Now, El was called the Mighty One, the Father of Years, the Father of Man, and the Father of Men and Gods. Okay, So you're starting to see a little bit about parallels between Yahweh and El a little bit here. Okay, Now, El had three wives who were also his sisters. Eh? Okay? Um, uh, uh, Astarte, Asherah, and Baaltis. Okay, they were his three white sisters. Okay, and he presided over a divine council of gods who were his children. And he was brutal enough to slay his own son, but he was still called the kindly one. So go figure that out. He was described as an old man with white hair and a beard. Okay, so there is some lore about God that has seeped its way into our own understanding of God, right? We sometimes view God in culture that he's this old white-haired guy, you know, the, um, the strong, powerful one, the father of years, okay? And so we still sometimes apply some of these old titles to the God that we love and worship. Okay, now, that's El. Then there was this God named Hadad, and he was the great storm god, the king of the gods, okay? And he was the central figure in multi-god worship in this day and age. And functionally, he was far more important than El, because El was a shadowy figure that lived far away from Canaan, but Hadad was the local god. Now, what you need to understand is, gods of the ancient Mesopotamian area were, there was a pantheon of them, there were tons of them, but they were location-specific. So your city, your group of people, would have a god that would be your main god. There were other gods, but that was the god that was your main god. But if you left your territory, you literally left your god behind. You were no longer protected, because that was his zone over there. 
And if you step out of the zone, you are no longer protected by that God. So in the Old Testament, you'll read in some places where they pack up and go, but they take their house God with them. Okay? God did not like that. He said, that's stupid. Put the rock down and follow me. Okay? I think that says that in there. That's stupid. Put the rock down. Don't quote me on it, but it's in there somewhere uh, in the Old Testament. So, Hadad was the storm god, and he acted as El's prime minister, and then eventually dethroned him, okay? Um, now, when he dethroned El, he became Baal, which means he became the Lord, though it's a general title that could be applied to many gods. For the people of Canaan, he became the god. He became Baal. He became the elevated one that they would worship. Baal was considered to be the Lord of heaven, the one who prevails, the exalted Lord of the earth. He alone reigned over everyone else. His kingdom was considered to be eternal through all generations. He was the God of justice, the terror of evildoers, the giver of fertility, and when he died, all vegetation and procreation ceased. Okay? So, just... Bear with me, because this is so fascinating. Okay. So, Baal hung out with El's daughter, Anath, and El's sister, Asherah, and they were his siblings and lovers. Right? Thank you. Okay? Um, so, um, El and Baal shared a spouse in some ways, okay, with Asherah, and then it's all mixed up. It's just very crazy. Um, don't live like this, okay? Basically. <laughs> so, you should also know that the Canaanites, along with most other ancient Mesopotamians, explained nature, how they understood the world worked, by reference to their god. Now, if you're familiar with any kind of Greek mythology or Roman mythology, you're like Zeus and Poseidon, and you're like, okay, there's the sea god, and there's the thunder god. And, okay, it's the same kind of deal in ancient Mesopotamia. They just had different names. Each god represented a force of nature, so the sun and the moon and the stars and the wind and the visible planets were each considered to be their own god or goddess because that's how they explained how things move and happen. Baal was seen as the god of the thunderstorm, and he personified all the power of nature. Now, ancient Canaanite texts will tell us that the role Baal played in the cycle of seasons. I'm only telling you this because it's super important to the story, okay? In this story, this ancient Mesopotamian history of Baal, Baal meets his archenemy Mot, which means death. And Mot, death, kills Baal. Uh, when Baal, the god of fertility, dies, the result is that creation is adversely affected. Nature becomes unproductive <coughs> and infertile, and for that period of time, famine and drought exists. And then Baal's sister and lover, Anath, comes to seek and avenge his death. So she finds Mott, she kills death, we'll figure that one out, in one of the most violent stories ever recorded. Let me read it to you. This is off of ancient, or, or uh, Ugardic, I can't pronounce it, ancient Mesopotamian text, okay? <laughs> like the heart of a cow for her calf, like the heart of a ewe for her lamb, so is the heart of a gnat for Baal. She seizes godly Mott, and with sword she doth cleave him. With fan she doth winnow him. With fire she doth burn him. With hand mill she grinds him. In the field she sows him. Birds eat his remnants, consuming his portions, flitting from remnant to remnant. 
Right? Okay. So, after Mott is killed by Anath, Baal is resurrected. He comes to life and he mates with Anath, and the consummation of their love remain, uh, remains that fertility is revived in the drought-stricken land. So this is how they discover seasons exist. In the springtime is fertility because Baal was raised from the dead and mated with a nap and there's life and fertility. But in the wintertime when things die down, it's because um, the gods are reenacting, uh, the world is reenacting the death of Baal at the hand of Mott. So this is how ancient Canaanites viewed the world that they lived in. Okay? Um, so um, the Canaanites believe that the land regained its fertility, okay, um, at the land regained its fertility because of the annual mating of Baal and Anath. So, what better form for Canaanite worship than the imitating of the sexual behavior of their chief deities? So in the Old Testament, you will read a lot about temple prostitutes to false gods, and this is what's going on. The more sex that you had, the more your god was pleased with you, the more the fertility your land would have, this is how it worked in the Old Testament. So if the gods and goddesses were pleased by the worship, then the result would be a plentiful harvest. Canaanite worship centered on um, a high place. The highest place you could get in your land was where you would worship, because you were physically then closer to the gods. So they chose the highest place they could, and in this place, it happens to be Mount Carmel. Okay? Now when the Israelites appeared in the Promised Land later in Canaan, they faced this religion that was perverted and decadent. And God said, I forbid you to adopt any of these practices. In fact, not only should these practices be exterminated, but these people should be wiped off the face of the planet. Why do you think they just totally destroyed Jericho? I mean, they just wiped it to the ground and God said, don't rebuild. These things were going on. Deuteronomy chapter 20. You shall annihilate them as the Lord your God commands you so that they will not teach you to imitate, imitate all the abominable things they have done for their gods, and so cause you to sin against the Lord your God. God says, listen, it's not good, that's not good. They are not, it's not good for you. Don't do this, and get, as you enter the land, when, they, uh, when you find them, kill them, because knowing your hearts, you will turn towards their ways. So here is the significant and big difference between false god worship and true god worship. The God of Israel, the God we worship, Yahweh, He is above all of nature. He is the only God the Israelites worshipped, and He was invisible. The Israelites viewed God as neither subject to nor a part of nature. God is not a tree. God is not the wind. God is above and exists outside of all of those things that He created. Uh, for the faithful Hebrew, God was the creator, sustainer. He was the almighty. There was no one greater than him or comparable to him in any form, shape, way, in anything. And when Israel became a strong organized nation, the influence of the surrounding polytheism of the other nations became a major challenge to them. So, Israelites and Canaanites shared certain ritual features in their worship. Some uh, terms of sacrifices were overlapped. The designs of their temples were very similar. Um, and they came into conflict with these similarities when Canaanite practice violated the moral commands of God. So they looked similar, but they weren't the same. Okay? Um, and, uh, and one of the things that violated the moral practices uh, of God's people uh, 
were the fact that Canaanites um, practiced human sacrifice with adults and children to their gods. Um, temple prostitution, mutilation of the human body, and sorcery. Those were the things that God was like, no-nos, okay? You don't do those things. Um, mutilation of bodies was practiced regularly by Canaanite worships in rituals for the dead because um, that's just how they were to worship. One Ugaritic text gives a um, typical Canaanite grief ritual. Here's a quote from a relief that they have, um, you know, stone carved kind of thing. He pours the ashes of grief on his head, the dust of wallowing on his head. For clothing he is clothed with the sackcloth. He roams the mountain in mourning. Yea, through the forest in grief, he cuts his cheek and his chin, lacerates his forearms, plows his chest like a garden, like a veil he lacerates his back. He lists his voice, voice and shouts, Baal is dead. This is how they were supposed to worship. This is how their gods are telling them to worship. If you want to understand how your god died and be part of your god and please your god, shred your skin and bleed, and that will please your god. And Yahweh says, don't do that. Just don't do that. Um, so this practice that we just discussed forms the background for the story that we have today. God said, listen, you are children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourself or shave the front of your heads for the dead. You are a people holy to God. Distinct difference, okay? So here, we've got this story um, where uh, a king is saying, we're going to make the national God the God of all. We are going to worship like they worship him. And we are putting aside Yahweh. No wonder God said he's done worst of all the kings, right? So, um, chapter 17, brief summary. Nation of Israel, not doing super well. God was not very happy with them because of their king. So, uh, oh, I forgot, there's Paul. There he is. For what it's worth, he's got a hammer and sand because I don't know why. Uh, but that's who he was. Yes. Um, yeah, uh, there you go. Um, okay, First Kings 17. Um, God sent Elijah, uh, the prophet Elijah, to go to Ahab and say, listen, because of your sinful ways, uh, I'm, there's going to be no more rain. Because you're sinful, I'm going to withhold rain from the land. As the Lord lives, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there will be neither dew nor rain in these years except by my word. Not even dew. There's not going to be enough moisture in the air for there to be condensation at night. That's pretty darn bad, folks. That's a very bad drought. And Elijah goes to King Ahab and gives him the message, and then God whispers in Elijah's ear, uh, you better run. Because uh, you're going to lose your life if you don't run. Jezebel's not happy. Jezebel was so angry about this prophecy that she rounded up all of the prophets of Yahweh that she could find and slaughtered them so that nothing could oppose her worship of Baal. I admire her passions, but not her actions. Okay? I admire her definitive, I'm going to worship who I'm going to worship, and I'm not going to let anything stop me. I don't like how she went about it. Okay? Don't follow Jezebel's uh, actions here. Now, Elijah hid in the wilderness, chapter 17 tells us, for the duration of the drought, three and a half years. And in that time, God provided miraculously for Elijah. If you want to know how, read 1 Kings 17. It's a relatively short book. Three great little stories in there. I will tell you uh, the timeline uh, of Elijah hiding during the drought. 1 Kings 18. 3.5 years into the drought, God speaks to Elijah again and says, Go find Ahab. And speak to him. And so Elijah's just the obedient prophet. He's like, okay. 
and he sets off to go find King Ahab. Now, about that time in King Ahab's life, he's realizing this drought's so bad, our livestock are going to die if we don't do something. So, um, I'm going to take my trusted servant. His name is uh, Obadiah. And uh, I'm going to take Obadiah and me, and we're going to split the flocks between us. We're going to go in different, dif different directions, and we're going to hope one of us rides grazing pasture for our animals. Now, a little bit about Obadiah. He was a really godly man that worked for a really ungodly king. And he was so godly that he risked his life. When Jezebel rounded up all of the prophets of God, um, Obadiah said, I need to do something. He saved 100 prophets. He gathered them up and he hid them in a cave and he provided them with food and water for the entire time that Jezebel was angry. At great risk to himself because he was the king's right-hand man. I like Obadiah. You've got to imitate someone in this story. Obadiah is a good one to do, okay? Okay, so um, King Ahab went one direction. Obadiah went the other direction with the flocks. Now, as Obadiah is like, where can I find green pasture? I need to find green pasture for these, uh, these um, flocks that I have. He runs across Eliza, who's like, I'm going to go find the king. And, uh, and they have a conversation on the side of the road. He sees Elijah. And he recognizes Elijah as a prophet of God. And he falls down before Elijah. And Elijah says, listen, I need you, Obadiah, to go find Ahab and tell him I need to come talk to him. I'm going to go visit him. And Obadiah was terrified. He was absolutely terrified, spitless. He says this in verse 9. How have I sinned against you that you would ask me to do this? Like, what wrong have I done to you or your children or your dog or whatever that you would send me to go tell the king that you are coming? Because the king does not like you and the king will not like me for telling him that you are coming. He was worried that if he said, um, hey, King Ahab wants to come see you, he might lose his life because the king hates Elijah. Or perhaps, maybe he goes and tells the king this, but Elijah gets distracted and doesn't show up that day, and then the king is going to kill Obadiah anyway, because this is just a, the messenger's going to get shot kind of story, right? Elijah says, listen, as sure as God is alive, I will show up for the king today. Verse 17 tells us that Ahab and King Elijah meet, and when they do, the king says this to Elijah, Hey, troubler of Israel! Why you brought trouble on us, man? What's the deal? You troubled the people. It was a really threatening statement from the king. Ahab believed that all of the problems of the nation fell squarely on Elijah. Because Elijah had angered Baal. And because Baal was angered, he was still dead, I guess. And then he didn't, there was no fertility in the land. I don't know. Work that out in your own minds. It's a very confusing system. But needless to say, Ahab blamed Elijah for the drought. For good cause, because Elijah was the one that said, ain't going to be no rain, folks, for three and a half years. Then Elijah, he's just, I like Elijah. I like him so much. Um, several times in this story, I just sit back and I go, yeah, man, do it, okay? Because he doesn't fear men. He only fears God. And so he, King Ahab says, you troubler of Israel. And Elijah's like, don't scare me, man. So he answers back and he says this. Hey, King Ahab, I'm not troubled Israel. You have. You and your father's house. You have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the balls. You're the one who did this, not me. It's not on my back, dude. It's all on you. You're a bad king. And God didn't like what you did. Now, this is kind of insulting to the king. So after insulting the king, 
Elijah continues and he says, listen, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what we're going to do. You're going to gather up all of your prophets and take them to Mount Carmel. And uh, that's Mount Carmel right there. Okay, a big plains area here. Big flat top. Okay, that's the only high place there. Okay? Uh, so that's where the high place was. Um, and you're going to take all of your, your um, Baal worshippers and prophets, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, and you're going to go to Mount Carmel and I'll meet you there. Now here's the big idea. It's going to be a throwdown on the high place, which is mutually acceptable to my worship and your worship. There are altars to Yahweh up there, and you have your altar up there too. We both agree this is a holy place to our own lives, so it's common ground for us to go have this throwdown. You bring your prophets, I'll bring myself, we'll settle this today, and see who the real God is. So having no doubts about Paul's ability to bring rain, because he was the storm god, right? Okay. Ahab agrees, and he figures this is going to be a good way to prove once and for all that uh, Baal is God, and this crazy man, and this Yahweh God that he talks about, they need to go away forever. They're troublemakers and deserve death. So word spreads through the nation really quickly. There's going to be a showdown between the gods on Mount Carmel. Be there. It starts at such and such time. Sun up is when they were going to start. Be there. It's going to be a battle of epic proportions. Don't miss this event. You know, like Sunday, Sunday, Sunday kind of thing. This is how it's going to go down. So word spread through the nations. The people flocked to the mountain, okay? Ultimately, they flocked to the mountain to see Baal stomp Yahweh. That was what they were expecting. The bets were placed, and this was a tense time. Um, now, if the people were good uh, Baal worshippers, there was all kinds of sinful behaviors going on to encourage Baal to stand up strong. The people worshipping, the prophets were going to lead to worship. The false prophets of Baal were certain they knew the outcome of this story. Elijah was certain he knew the outcome of this story. Obadiah, he was trapped between two worlds. Godly man serving an ungodly king. Ahab, I bet he had some curiosity to see how this ancestral god of his, this Yahweh that he knew about but had abandoned, would do in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the ball that he now professed. And so, um, the people, um, Elijah called out to them as the challenge began. And he says in verse uh, 21 of 18, How long, people, will you limp between two different opinions? If, people, if this verse doesn't do this to your heart, then uh, we need to spend more time with God. This is, a, this is a pointed verse for our hearts. How long will you limp between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, then follow Him. It's a brazen statement. He's saying, choose a side right now before we decide this. It's going to be decided, so choose a side before we do it. Now, so often in this culture, the top God would change frequently. Um, you know, like, one God, the Prime Minister God overthrows the big God, and then there's this skirmish, and then another God overthrows that God. And there was a constant overchange in gods. And so they were constantly trying to figure out, who is my new God and how do I please him? What kind of worship do I need to do to please the new God that's overthrown the other God? How long are you going to limp, is what Elijah says. Every time you change gods, you're limping from one to another. And every time you switch and you limp further, the cycle is going to kill you eventually. You can only limp so long 
before you lose life and limb. And so he said, make a stand. Put on your big boy pants and choose a God. Take your marks. Stake your claim. Bet all your coins. Go all in. All in or nothing. Lay it all on the table. Take a risk. If you believe that Baal is God, stand on that side. If you believe that Yahweh is God, stand on this side. And then he gave the terms of the showdown. You gave your 450 prophets, Baal. I'm going to be the only one representing Yahweh. You choose two bulls, and then of the two, you choose the one that you want to sacrifice. This is so Elijah says, nobody can say he pulls any hinky, you know, tricks. He's letting them do all the choosing. You choose the bull that you want to sacrifice to Baal. You build your altar, cut the, cut the bull up, put it on the altar, but don't light the fire. And I'll do the same with the other bull on my altar, and then we will call upon the names of our God, and the God who answers with fire will be the real God. And this sounded super fair to the prophets of Baal, because he's the storm god, like zap things with lightning, was in his wheelhouse, so that we got this. We got Baal's like the lightning storm god, we got this. So they took the bull of their choice, they cut it up, they put it on the altar, and they began to cry out to Baal as they danced. Now remember what we talked about earlier, about the ways that they are supposed to worship when Baal is dead, and life needs to come back to the land, okay? So they danced. The word in scripture might say danced, it might say limped, depending on your translation. The word originally was limped. They limped around the altar in this dancing kind of way. And they, they cried out, Oh Baal, answer us! Hear us, Baal, hear us! 450 prophets shouting and yelling from early morning until noon. And no response. Now remember, they believed drought was caused by the fact that their God was dead. And so they needed to shout loud enough to waken him from death so that the fertility of the land could be resumed. Now I imagine Elijah's just sitting on a rock watching this, okay? And he's just watching with amusement. He has to be. This looks so silly to him. Till around noon when we are told that Elijah stood up and began to mock them. I love Elijah. He's so cool. Okay, so, so he has this such a dry, almost dark sense of humor. And he prods this group that's in a worshipful frenzy to fall. And in verse 20, this is just what it says, verse 27. Cry louder. He is so high above you. Maybe he's lost in thought. I kid you not. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's on a journey. Or he's asleep and he must be waking. He's taunting them. Is your God in the bathroom? In the, in the language, it actually said, your God is taking a number two. He's too busy to help you. You have to cry louder. Can you just, I mean, Elijah is just a man of God and he's like, your God's in the bathroom. He's not paying attention to you. He's reading the newspaper. He's got better things to do. Cry louder, Baal. Cry louder. And so they did. And they cut themselves, Scripture says, with swords and lances. And blood was everywhere. And as the day continued to go on with no results, Elijah finally stepped in. And he said, listen, Paul's not going to answer. Paul's not real. Let's be serious here. Gather up, folks. Uh, it's my turn now. There was an old altar on this mountain for Yahweh. It had been long knocked down by the people who worshipped false gods. And so what he did was he rebuilt it in the sight of the people. He took 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of God's children. And he built a trench around this altar. And then he laid the cut-up bowl on the altar. And they did something super strange. There was this stream that ran through the mountain. 
and he commanded that four jars of water be poured on the altar. Now, in a time of drought, that's pretty significant. Four jars of water be poured on the altar. And he had them do that three times. That's 12 dousings of water. So much so that the trench around the altar was filled with water. The bowl was soaked. The wood was soaked. The stones were soaked. And by the time he was done with all this preparation, because that takes time, let's be honest, he's the only one doing it, the evening was upon them. And according to Yahweh worship, it was time for the evening sacrifice. Now, in sharp contrast to the way that people worship Baal with loud screams and dancing and cutting themselves, it says Elijah grew still and quiet. And he prayed. And this is what he prayed. O oh Lord, God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. He's identifying the God he was praying to. So that there would be no confusion. It was not Baal he was praying to. He was the ancestral God of these people. O oh Lord, God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Israel. Let it be known this day that you are the God of Israel. He's asking that God would demonstrate himself over all of the false gods. And then he continues, And Lord, let it be known that I am your servant, and that I have done all of this by your word. I'm not trying to be fancy for myself. I am obeying you, God, and trying to lead the people towards you. And he continues, Answer me, O God, so that they will know that you are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Let me read this prayer back to you. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God of Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all of these things according to your word. Answer me, Lord. Answer me that these people will know that you are God, and you have turned their hearts back to them. He answered, I desire an answer to this prayer for the sake of the people. He didn't want them to limp back and forth. Elijah wanted desperately for God to change the hearts of the people on this mountain. To restore them and bring them back and heal them from their limping. He wanted them to repent of their sin. And he prayed this prayer and scripture says, Immediately, fire from heaven came. Immediately, fire from heaven, the fire of the Lord fell on the altar. And it didn't just like barbecue the bowl. Scripture tells us that it fully consumed the bowl, the wood, the stones, the altar, and the water. It was gone. It wasn't there anymore. The fire of the Lord went zap, and it was, everything was gone. And the people of Israel fell on their faces in confession and said, The Lord is God. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. And in that moment, they realized how greatly they had offended God. And how powerful this Yahweh was. And they made an immediate choice not to live anymore. They chose Yahweh and Yahweh's prophets. And so Elijah said, get the prophets of Baal. Round them up. Don't let them escape. And the, the newly confessing people of Yahweh rounded up the 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah slaughtered them according to the word of the Lord. It says in Deuteronomy, you will annihilate them as the Lord commanded you so that they will not teach you to imitate all the abominable things that they do. Then Elijah turns to Ahab and says, can you just picture this? Elijah, prophet of God, slaughters 450 people. That's not a clean act, okay? And then he, covered in the blood of these prophets, turns to Ahab and says, the rain is coming. God is sending it. Prepare yourself. Drops the microphone, walks away. Okay? Um, 
The people of Israel were lost, right? They were experiencing a physical drought in their land, which God sent to help them see the spiritual drought that was in their souls. And they acted in the only way they knew how. In seeking new life for their land, they inflicted wounds on their bodies to bring their God back from the dead. They believed that this would solve their problem, but it wouldn't. And the reality is, it's not our work and our blood that atones for our sins and gives life to God. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It is God's work and God's blood that atones for our sins. And it is God who gives life to us through Jesus Christ. They had it inverted. We were dead in our sin, and God rose under His own power, not our instigation. God rose under His own power to restore life to us. That's not something we can do. We can't do that. He did it for us. So I just have three questions for you this morning, and then we'll be done. Who is your God? Who is your God? Do you have drought in your life? Are you spiritually dry? Are you limping between one thing and another thing? Trying to see what provides for you in the moment. What gives you happiness now? What makes you feel full here? And tomorrow it might be something else. And you've got this pantheon of multiple gods that you go to for pleasure in your life. Where does your time, where do your thoughts, where does your money and your heart go? Who do you turn to for comfort? That's going to reveal who your God or gods are. Secondly, do you want to know with certainty that there is only one God, and His name is Jesus, and He's the King of Kings? I can tell you with certainty from experience in my own life that if you desire to know if God is God, and ask Him earnestly, are you God? Will you show yourself to me? He will reveal himself to you. You can know today, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God is God, supreme over everything, Lord of life and the one who gave you life, the one who will restore you and knit you in, uh, in his presence in such a way that will change the rest of your life. You will no longer limp. You will not perish, but you will have life. If you are dry this morning, let God pour his spirit into you. Let it rain down like holy fire into your heart. Those are the two questions. Who is your God, and do you want to know if God is God? The third thing is more of an action. If you know, after some prayer this morning, that God is God and that you need to follow Him, if that's what you know and God has spoken to you and how He speaks to you, I don't know. For me, it's this weird physical, like a... Tummy sensation and sweaty palm thing. I don't know, it's weird. That's how God speaks to me. I kind of know it's distinct, okay? He speaks to everybody differently. If you know that God is speaking to you and saying, I'm real, I'm real, pay attention to me, I've so much good for you, you will abide with me, then that confession of faith must lead to action of faith. Confession of faith has to lead to action of faith. The people confessed, and then they brought the prophets of Baal to the sword. Faith in God cannot coexist with continual sin. It must motivate us to action. James tells us that faith is demonstrated by our actions, right? But we are not saved by them. We are saved by faith alone, through Christ alone. But we demonstrate our faith with action. Romans tells us, through faith we are children of God. And children of God are enabled by the Spirit of God, which is in us. To put to death the things that are sinful in our life. The change, of, the call has not changed. 
from the moment on Mount Carmel, you confess Christ as Lord, and you put sin to death. The call is still the same to us today. If you know that Christ is Lord, then you are called to put sin to death this morning. That's what it says in Romans. Put sin to death. So maybe your prayer this morning will be, Lord, help my unbelief. Because I don't believe. I don't believe that you're God. You're going to have to prove it to me because I'm doing pretty good on my own. I don't really have any problems in life. Life is good. I'm happy. I just don't believe that you're God. I haven't needed you to this point. I don't know that I'll need you in the future. So, I don't even know that I'm talking to anybody right now, but if you're you, okay, show me. It might be that kind of prayer. It might be the kind of prayer that says, Lord, help my unbelief. I, I think I believe. I want to believe. I don't know if I have enough faith to believe. Help my unbelief. God will answer that one too. <coughs> it might also be, I believe, but I need more. I just need more fire from heaven in my life. So whatever the prayer that you're going to pray this morning... You need to pray honestly. And let's expect that God will answer in our hearts and our minds. Because I believe that when we earnestly seek God, He will answer us. So here's what I will say to you as your pastor. If Christ is God, then serve Him. But if Baal is God, then serve Him. But make a choice this morning. Jeremiah 29 promises us this. If you seek Me with all of your heart, you will find Me. Amen. You guys want to seek God this morning? You want to know that he's real? Let's pray. Lord, um, I'm not Elijah. Last night I was laying in bed away. Lord, talking to you and I'm praying all the things that were rumbling around in my mind and my heart. And I find myself praying a little bit like Elijah. Lord, just a little bit of Elijah. Just give me a, just give me a portion of what he's got. Because I want to see lives changed in Sunday service. So that when they go out, they're changed lives that can change lives. It's not enough that we think that you're God, that we intellectually understand that you're God. We must take a step of faith and say, we will live that you are God because you have given us life. We don't have an altar here. We don't have a bowl here. We're not pouring water on anything here. We don't have any dancing prophets here. There is no physical drought in our land. And some of us are content with life and some of us are uncertain some of us are desperately in need of change, but you alone, Lord, are God. You alone know how to speak to each one of us. You alone can enter, literally enter into our hearts and confirm for us in these moments that you are God, that we might have faith and trust in you no matter what's happening in our life. Give us just a few minutes in silence to talk with God, to ask him honestly, to challenge him. Show us that He is God in our own heart and life. And Lord, if it means fire's got to rain down from heaven, then do it. I don't care what you've got to do, God, but I want you to do something in the lives of those who are here this morning. Lord, we speak to you now and we listen.